I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss the latest news from Ukraine as Russia conducts a series of massive missile strikes across the country. The UN nuclear chief arrives at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, and a leaked document shows how Russia is paying Iran billions of dollars for drones. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's gonna break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 7th of February, one year and 347 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our associate editor Dominic Nichols and assistant comment editor Francis Dernley. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Well, hi, David. Hi, everybody. A night of a lot of air activity across Ukraine, Kyiv and other major cities hit this morning. Lots of other regions, if not hit, then had air alerts. This is coming from Ukraine's air force. Ukrainian cities targeted mainly Kyiv, Dnipro, Lviv, Mykolaiv and Kharkiv. Several blasts heard in the capital when air defence systems um, went off trying to push back or repel the attack. President Zelensky said at the moment two people have died, 10 wounded. In Kyiv's mayor, Vitaly Klitschko, said a number of people, including a pregnant woman, injured. The strikes left power lines, damaged apartments and um, civilian structure, service station, what have you, on fire. In southern uh, Mykolaiv region, local authorities reported one killed, several wounded. Explosions heard also across northeastern Kharkiv. Uh, according to the Ukrainian Air Force, Russian cruise missiles were also detective, detected sorry, across the western regions of Lviv, Ternopil and Ivano-Frankivsk. The whole country was under an air alert at 6am local time. That's, uh, that's 4 o'clock uh, GMT. That's about nine hours ago. President Zelensky said another massive Russian air attack against our country. Six regions came under enemy fire. All of our services are currently working to eliminate the consequences of this terror. In Mykolaiv, dozens of houses were destroyed and one person killed. More than 10 people were injured in Kyiv and two have been reported dead as of now. There may be people underneath the rubble. My condolences to all who have lost loved ones. We will definitely retaliate against Russia. Terrorists will always face the consequences of their actions. Now, the Ukraine Ukraine's Air Force said it had shot down 29 missiles and 15 drones, so 44 uh, weapons out of a total of 64 fired at them. The drones seem to have been launched from Chowdar, that's on the east of occupied Crimea, about 50 k's southwest of the Kirsch Bridge. It's on the southern coast, or just like I say, southwest of the, the Kirsch Bridge. Cruise missiles seem to have been launched from bombers that were launched from Russia's Saratov Oblast, that's well over to the east, borders. Kazakhstan and also fired cruise missiles fired from the Caspian Sea. Further cruise ballistic and anti-air missiles launched from around Sevastopol and in Russia's Kursk, Voronezh and Belgorod oblast that came that last there from Ukrainian intelligence and then I mean to give you an idea of the scale of this uh, at least three Polish fighter jets were scrambled uh, during the attack. Operational command of the armed forces of Poland said intensive long-range aviation activity 
of the Russian Federation is being observed due to missile strikes on Ukrainian territory. All necessary procedures aimed at ensuring the safety of Polish airspace have been launched. Now, we know that there have been some incidents of in the past of, of munitions landing inside Poland, obviously a NATO member, most obviously when Russia has been attacking the port facilities on the Danube. There's no reports yet today of, uh, of anything landing in Poland, but we will obviously keep an eye out for that. Now, second thing, Russia's attempt to capture Avdivka has reached a critical stage. This is from Ukraine. The Kremlin obviously has been pushing hard since at least last October. Troops on three sides of so the south, southwest and the kind of northeast-ish. Um, they've been pushing hard. Russian soldiers have begun. They've reached the outskirts in recent days. And Vitaly Barabash, who's the head of Avdivka's military administration, warned yesterday the situation in the town is now critical in some areas. He said, this does not mean that everything is lost, that everything is very bad, but the enemy is directing very large amount of forces at our city. On another interesting, uh, well, another interesting, yes, special forces raid here, Ukrainian special forces alleged to have um, raided and blown up a mining platform in the Black Sea, Russia had been using it to support drone operations. This came out of Kiev authorities. The operation, dubbed Citadel, was conducted at night and captured was said to have captured important enemy equipment. Russia seized the platform as well as some other mining platforms early in the after the full-scale invasion. It's located near the coast of um, occupied Crimea. They also put some equipment on on there, and they have done throughout other platforms just to to help extend the range or at least the command and control of the drones, many of the Shahid drones. And this is coming from Ukraine's Special Operations Forces on Telegram. Uh, They also said Moscow had put a radar on that platform to monitor ships in the Black Sea and to try and regain some kind of control. Now, Ukraine said that during this nighttime raid, its forces hit the platform, went out having sailed out in fast boats, managed to evade Russian aircraft and uh, naval patrols, they were said to have searched the facility, mined it, and then uh, and then got out of there with some equipment that they'd taken back. One thing I've noticed, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, on his nightly address last night, ordered the creation of a separate branch of the armed forces, specifically to concentrate on drones. So I'll read you what he said in his nightly address last night, his video address. He said, I've just signed a decree which will launch the creation of a separate branch within our armed forces, a drone systems force. This is not a question for the future. Rather, it must provide concrete results in the very near future. This year must be decisive in a great many aspects. And clearly on the battlefield, drone systems have shown their effectiveness on land, in the skies and on the seas. Ukraine has truly changed the security situation in the Black Sea with the help of drones. Repelling ground assaults is primarily the task of drones. The large-scale destruction of the occupiers and their equipment is also the domain of drones. He said the current list of tasks is clear. Special staff positions for drone operations, special units, effective training, systematization of experience. I guess that means the dreaded phrase lessons learned, but bringing into Bring, you know, a lesson is not learned until it's led to systemic change and organisations and structures and teaching and what have you. He's also talking about constant scaling of production and the involvement of the best ideas and top specialists in the field. He said it's a task for the army, the MOD and the government as a whole and to ensure the necessary coordination in the defence forces 
to ensure the proper level of planning and quality of logistics. The unmanned systems forces will be established within the AFU, the Armed Forces of Ukraine. He said relevant proposals for this new force are going to be submitted soon to the NSDC, that's the National Security and Defence Council. So interesting that, that, I mean, all the stuff we've talked about for nearly two years now about drones, they are trying to bring it all into one place, establish a a coherent force with a structure and a, and a head and obviously give it funding and, and all the rest of it. If you want to have a look at what where we are with drones, have a look at uh, H. Sutton's Covert Shores website and on Twitter he shows he showed a picture of a Ukrainian ground drone, so an unattended ground system, robot if you like, with wheels, recovering a crashed Russian Orlan 10 drone. So now you've got you can actually send ground vehicles out to pull back equipment. It's long been an aspiration for these kind of ground vehicles to, to get to take supplies forward, water ammunition, etc. etc. And to get casualties out of there. So if this is if this is the start of robot wars, it may well be. I'm going to talk a little bit. Well, a bit later. I I had the pleasure yesterday of of playing with an Orlan 10 drone and a, and a Shahid. I was on a visit, but I'll talk about that a little bit later. Get that quiet, Dom. Get that quiet. Well, is that a, is that an Orlan 10 in your pocket? Were you just pleased to see me? And just a couple more. Rafael Grossi, the United Nations nuclear watchdog chief, has arrived at the Zaporizhia nuclear plant in Russian-controlled Ukraine. This comes out of. RIA Novosti, that's a Russian state-owned news agency. He's accompanied by IAEA staff and a load of Russian soldiers. That's the International Atomic Energy Agency, sorry, I should say. He's there looking at the safety of the facility. It's been inactive now for 18 months, but he's very concerned about the sharp cuts to staff numbers, Ukrainian staff numbers in particular, cut by Russian authorities. There are question marks also over whether the year-old uranium fuel remains safe. Speaking to AP, he said this huge facility used to have around 12,000 staff. Now this has been reduced to between two and 3,000, which is quite a steep reduction in the number of people working there. So far, the situation is stable, but it is a very, very delicate equilibrium. And then he finished by saying, this is why I need to see for myself the situation. What are the prospects in terms of staffing, medium term and long term as well? I mean, we, we've talked repeatedly about the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. It is very concerning. We don't really know. No, nobody really knows what happens if you just ignore these things and let them do their own thing. And then, you know, if they're in the middle of a war zone. So it is it is very concerning. Any discussion about delicate nuclear e- equilibrium that has two verys in the sentence gets me concerned. So we all uh, also need to keep a close eye on that one. And then just finally from me, or have I got two more? Well, let's start with this one. The Kyiv Independent this morning is reporting that Ukraine's Veterans Affairs Minister has resigned amid reports of a possible reshuffle of the country's leadership. Yulia Laputina's resignation was approved by Ukraine's parliament with 302 lawmakers in favour and no one voting against the move. She submitted her resignation to parliament on Monday, did not specify the reason for her decision in her resignation letter. But just on that, uh, or on Parliament more broadly. It's just in the last hour we've we've seen that Ukraine's Parliament has tentatively backed a bill to boost military numbers. You'll remember this has been a point of contention between President Zelensky and General Zeluzhny. Um, General Zeluzhny wants more people in the military, wants to, wants to increase the draft. So 243 MPs approved the first reading today. However, it's going to be many, many weeks before anything actually comes into law. 
But if passed in its original form, it will mean the it will lower the age of military service from 27 to 25. It will make it harder to avoid the draft. However, there's no suggestion of they haven't put a figure on it about what how many people need to be uh, need to be drafted in. But Alexei Goncharenko, who's uh, an opposition uh, lawmaker, he said this is not a final decision. There will be a second. There will be second reading amendments. Sorry, there will second reading amendments will be made to it. Basically, I've mangled that one. But a little way to go. But uh, this is well. Is it, I mean, there's a lot of politics moving on at the moment. You got President Zelensky trying to re- talking about reshuffling the top of the tree there, which might be why the Veterans Affairs Minister has gone. But equally, there's tension between Zeluzny, who's still in post, who's been open for his, his call for more personnel in military service. And then this bill is is, uh, is going through, passed, like I say, 243 voted to, to put it through today. So, yeah, so a lot of politics happening there, David, but that's you up to date and everyone up to date for now. Thank you very much, Dom. As you said, we'll come back to your trip, uh, your day out yesterday, later. But Francis Sternley, what's been taking your eye today? Thanks, David. I agree. That story that Dom's just covered there, which is, of course, breaking, that the Ukrainian armed forces are going to receive more numbers potentially is, I think, extremely significant. It speaks to the tensions within Ukrainian society at the moment. And indeed, I think there'll be a lot of speculation that maybe Zelensky conceded ground to General Zeluzhny in order to stop some of the criticisms that have been flung his way as a result of the purported reshuffle taking place within Ukraine at present. Really interesting. And I think there'll be some more to talk about that in the next couple of days. But we gave a particular focus to Ukraine and its allies yesterday. But there are a lot of stories today about Russia and its diplomatic relationships around the world. Let's start with Turkey, where we're learning more details about the subjects of discussions in the upcoming meetings between President Erdogan and Putin that are scheduled for the 12th of February. Putin's trip will see them, we learn, liaise on the war in Ukraine and the Black Sea Grain Initiative. So a spokesman for Erdogan has said that Turkey is still working with Ukraine and Russia to revive the Black Sea Grain Initiative brokered by the UN and Turkey to allow the safe export of Ukrainian grains via the Black Sea after, of course, Moscow withdrew from the accord in July 2023. It goes without saying that it is in Turkey's interest to try and keep the flame of that deal alive since they were such a key broker in arranging it in the first place. Though there is increased evidence that due to Kyiv's efforts to find alternative means of transporting grain, it is far less of a priority now than it was several months ago from a Ukrainian perspective. Ukraine's hand has been strengthened and it's weakened Russia's leverage. Ankara attaches great importance to the continuation of constant dialogue with Russia. That's a phrase they often use. And this proposed visit would be the Russian leader's first trip to a NATO member country since the full-scale invasion. A signal for some in the alliance, I think it's fair to say, that is not overtly positive for all of the obvious reasons, though one wonders whether that is why Turkey decided to offer an olive branch to NATO by removing its opposition to Sweden joining the bloc. As ever, Turkey plays both sides for its own advantage, fulfilling its historic role. Now, speaking of countries which are keen to maintain ties with both Russia and the West, Israel's ambassador has arrived at the Russian foreign ministry this morning after being summoned over unacceptable comments. 
Moscow yesterday demanded that Simona Halparin reported to them over remarks she made in an interview with a Russian newspaper where she accused Sergei Lavrov, the foreign minister, of course, of playing down the importance of the Holocaust and said he was too friendly with Hamas. So according to Russia's foreign ministry, Ms. Halperin misrepresented Russia's foreign policy stance in what it described as an extremely unsuccessful start to her diplomatic posting, which began last December. Strong words, stronger than one might expect, given the relationship that was previously quite strong between Israel and Russia. As we've discussed, the Israeli position before in terms of the dialogue with Russia... Moscow was considered an important broker with Syria and between Israel and Arab nations, have been strained of late. For political reasons, the Kremlin began to align itself more overtly with countries that were critical of the Western response to the attacks on October 7th by Hamas, specifically support for Israel in Gaza. They've been critical of that. It offered Putin an opportunity to begin talking about alleged war crimes committed by other countries, something that's very helpful for him, given the amount of criticism thrown at his way due to the attacks on civilian targets within Ukraine. When things settle in the Middle East, it will be very interesting indeed to see how Russia is perceived. Though given its role in the oil markets, I think there are signs of a more positive relationship between Russia and Arab nations than many expected. But as I say, that's still very much open to what happens in the next few weeks and months. More anger, too, closer to home, with the Georgian president denouncing plans for a Russian naval base in the breakaway Abkhazia region as describing it as a threat to security in the Black Sea. Listeners will recall that as Ukraine stepped up attacks on Moscow's Black Sea fleet last October, the separatist leader of Abkhazia, this is this disputed territory in northwestern Georgia, signed an agreement with Russia to establish a naval base at the Black Sea town of Olchamchir in the near future. That was the phrase that was said at the time. Now, during an address to Parliament yesterday, Georgia's president said the following. Russia's plan to transform the Ochamchir port into its naval base is aimed at shifting the confrontation into the Black Sea, into our territorial waters, and at creating a threat to the strategic perspective of the Black Sea. Now, Abkhazia is recognised as an independent state by Russia, though nearly all UN member states consider it sovereign territory of Georgia. Ochamchir was seen as a base for Russian patrol vessels operating in the Black Sea since 2009, but it was too shallow to receive larger vessels. But Ukraine's intelligence service said on October that Russia was actively reconstructing the port infrastructure in some places to ensure that warships can be based there. This is a really interesting story, I think, as it speaks to the tensions between countries geographically closer to Russia as well as how Moscow has been forced to respond to those devastating attacks on its Black Sea ports in Crimea, which have completely shredded the argument that Russia must retain Crimea for its own security, because there is no security for its ships in that port, in those ports any longer. Another fascinating development in the last 24 hours, as trailed yesterday, is that Swedish officials have closed their investigation into the explosions of the Nord Stream gas pipelines, saying they don't have the jurisdiction. 
That decision comes despite Sweden confirming traces of explosives were found at the site, suggesting that sabotage had taken place. Sweden's probe is only one of three into the explosions, with Denmark and Germany continuing to examine the blast. I'll need to read the details on this. This is another breaking story. But it will inevitably lead to some speculation, I think, that Sweden just doesn't want to investigate Kiev or perhaps a NATO country who may well have been responsible or implicated in this at a time when, critically for them, they are set to join NATO. I should add, there's no evidence for that. I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but I just mention it because it will feed that narrative. And I imagine we'll start to see the Kremlin sniping along those lines if they haven't already. Now, staying in Europe, Ignazio Cassis, the Swiss foreign minister, has said that he hopes China will give us a hand in Ukraine peace talks after Switzerland last month agreed to host that global peace summit on Ukraine. Ukraine has said it has invited Xi Jinping, the Chinese president, of course, to participate in that planned summit of world leaders in Switzerland to seek ways to end the war with Russia. At the request of Zelensky, neutral Switzerland agreed to host that event, but the date and the venue have yet to be set. Suffice to say, for reasons already discussed many times, it is exceedingly, exceedingly unlikely that a summit will make much substantive progress. But it is interesting to note that China is still seen as a key, if not the key broker when dealing with Russia. Hence those overtures from Ukraine and from the Swiss foreign minister. And just lastly, surprise, surprise, David, we learned last night that former Fox presenter Tucker Carlson is indeed in Russia to interview Vladimir Putin. I'll reflect on Carlson's remarks later in the episode, which were frankly utterly extraordinary when he announced this last night. But it's interesting to see the Kremlin scrambling to his support against those critics who say he's pro-Russian this morning. Dmitry Peskov said Carlson does not advocate for Russia, but his position differs merely from that of much of the Western media. Hmm. The interview is likely to be aired on Thursday, so tomorrow, Russia's TAS news agency said, citing reports from the Wall Street Journal. It will obviously be an important interview, not because what Putin says will necessarily represent the true Russian position. I think it's fair to say it won't. But what it tells us about his pitch to the West and specifically to Tucker Carlson's audience, including the Trump wing of the Republican Party, which has, of course, just blocked that bill of military aid to Ukraine in Congress. More on that once it drops tomorrow and more on Carlson himself very shortly. Well, thank you very much, Francis. As you said, we'll come back to you later for some more reflections on that. But Dom, can we hear a little bit more? I don't know what you can say really about your trip yesterday. Yeah, so yesterday I was part of a, a small journalist group. We went to RF Witten in Cambridgeshire, which is the um, the home of the, as it was described, the jewel in the crown of Britain's defence intelligence framework. So up there we've got the Pathfinder building, which is a, um, it's basically just a big office full of desks. But, you know, it's like, like anything as I cast my eye over the Telegraph newsroom, it's the quality of the work that happens at those desks that, that set it apart. So this is the first top-secret, purpose-built, five-eyes intelligence fusion and an assessment centre. And I'm not reading that. I'm just trying to put into sort of English what we were told. So basically, this place was designed to be a five-eyes hub from the word go. So so to get across all those all those issues so the americans got this thing called no fawn which is no foreigners as no no one no non-us citizens can see the product now you've got a there's a little bit of kind of you know as, as our american cousins would say open the kimono moment here when you got to got to share with friends 
And so this building was, it took ages to, to get it right. We're speaking to the Americans, Canadians, Australians, New Zealanders about how can we have one hub where everybody shares everything. And if there's anything that you want to keep sovereign and you don't want to expose and don't allow it in the building so your people aren't put in a, in a difficult place because it's just an, a huge open plan area where intelligence is worked on across all the different domains of intelligence. So you've got imit, imagery intelligence, you've got signals intelligence, there's measurement and signatures intelligence, there's human human intelligence, <clears throat> and there's probably some other ints I've forgotten about in there, tech int, technical intelligence. And it's all in one place. So this is where crises are run from, but also the long-term slow burn grind of intelligence product. And it's, it's very impressive. So like I say, it's designed from the word go to be five eyes. It's also top secret. So all the systems are designed to be able to handle that classification without any difficulty, without any firewalls, without any mandrolic interfaces or swivel chair interfaces, as we used to call it, i.e. you're working on one system and then you spin your chair around and work on another system because they can't talk to each other. So it's all it's all it talks to each other and it can be shared. And they have what they called follow the sun assessment. So they'd work on they'd work on stuff here. Then they would pass the. I mean, it's man twenty four seven three six five. But they would pass the work they're doing over to the East Coast US, where they would work on it in different in different buildings. There isn't there isn't a similar facility there. But they'd continue to work on intelligence, and they'd pass it on to Wellington in New Zealand, and on to Australia, and back to the UK. So there's this kind of global, constant global effort working on intelligence the whole time, in real time, as well as sort of legacy stuff as well. It was quite impressive, quite impressive to see. Of course, we're a load of journalists. So so they sort of do the big reveal from the viewing platform. And the first thing I noticed was every pillar holding holding the roof up had a big red light on it. And someone said, does that mean that there's an op in progress? Is there an actual strike right now on the Houthis or on something? And uh, and they went, no, 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 it's it's for another it's for another purpose entirely. So, oh, right. Is it because there's uh, there's some interesting intelligence that's come in that we you know is we're calling all the big boys? Like, no, no, it's because there's journalists in the room and everyone's got to turn their screens off. So actually, we didn't see an awful lot. It was just a big open building with some. Uh, there was some nice TV showing a, a boat wobbling around somewhere at some point in the near distant past. That footage taken from a drone. There was nothing live, of course. They weren't going to show us that. But it was interesting to see the whole place knitted together interestingly you can't you can't hear when people are talking a normal conversational level you can't hear someone at a distance that you would expect to be able to and that's because there's this constant low level uh, hiss which is not the aircon there is aircon as well obviously but there's this not the what you, what i thought last time i went up there when i th- thought was the um uh, was the aircon just slightly working overtime no it's just a very low level noise it's called pink noise apparently who knew pink noise i love their early stuff but yet it drowns out that the lower frequencies of human speech so that a building that's got hundreds of people in doesn't turn into an absolute chaotic cacophony of sound. You've probably got there or something. So it was very, the whole place had been designed to have lots of human beings working in high stress environments 24 hours a day, banks of servers all over the place. So it could get very hot, but it doesn't. Absolutely fascinating. It was covered in, it's, it's covered in grass. The whole building is covered in grass. It's a nice sort of dome shape, if you like, all covered in grass. And I remember the last time I went out, or when I used to go up, actually, when I was still serving, I once asked, or somebody asked, oh, is that, uh, why is it covered in grass? Is that to, is that to stop it being spied by, uh, by Russian satellites? And the person showing us around just said, look, 
they knew this thing was here. They had the blueprints before we did. So no, it's just a nice eco-friendly touch. But the thing's covered in grass, which is very muddy yesterday. It's a very impressive building. The Tekint guys gave us a brief. They showed us an Orland 10, which is a Russian intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance drone. It's a, I mean, small, it's sort of, the wingspan is kind of the span of your arms, really. It's, it's, a, it's not a micro drone, but it's not one of the biggies. It's not a Reaper or Pred or anything like that. And it was designed, so Orland 10s are designed to be reused. So they come back to their start point, supposedly. I mean, this one obviously didn't. <laughs> but um, they are generally expected to go back to their start point, land under a parachute, and the tail cone is sacrificial. So if that sort of breaks off, fine. But the actual important bit is the electro-optical camera that dangles underneath the belly. That's what's doing all the all the real work. So the wings and all the rest of it are pretty... I mean, they're fairly basic, to be perfectly honest. And hence, they're in the... <clears throat> excuse me. They're in the sort of low thousands of dollars per unit. They also showed us a Shahid 131. Oh, what was left of it? Obviously, Shahids are, are designed to go bang. This one was in pieces. I don't think it had, it had actually functioned as uh, as advertised, but it was in a pretty poor state. That was a bit bigger than the Orland 10. Had a very um, light weave honeycomb frame, which which I guess is uh, a bit like the old Gazelle used to fly. It's it's very strong. It's not good with point impact. So it's like an egg, basically. It will put up with a lot of bashing, but it's not good if you actually jab it with a with a finger or a compass or a pen don't do that to a gazelle you will make a hole but it's actually a very strong very light construction so i think that's what the the shahids were made out of so that it can carry the point of that is the airframe is very light so that it can carry as big a payload of high explosive as, as it can so it was weird actually the first ones i've i've ever well touched been talking about this thing for nearly two years now but to actually see these things in person it was a bit it was a bit weird and then the so the checking guys were They'll all be they'll be talking about that and working out. I mean, they don't work out well how big is it, so how far can it fly? They can they can sort they know all that stuff. You can get all that kind of information, but they'd be looking at well how is it controlled? So what's the electro optical um, capacity or the capability? How can that be sent off the platform? Does it have to wait until it comes home before it can be downloaded? All that kind of stuff. But um, but but fascinating to see where it's all where it's all pulled together. Fairly downbeat briefings from UK defence officials more broadly i mean they weren't picking up on some of the more flamboyant comments in recent weeks with people saying we're three years away from a war 10 years away from a war it's like okay define war and define the start of it so they weren't getting drawn into any kind of lurid headlines like that at all but they were saying this is um yeah it's a pretty testing time there was a defense official there who said this is the most dangerous time that uh, he had seen in his 40-year career in defense intelligence so you know they're, they're just they're not overdoing it but they are saying this is a very concerning time. There's a lot of lot of challenge right now. And, um, yeah, we see that in obviously in Ukraine, but also what's happening in the Red Sea, Israel-Gaza. There's a lot of stuff happening right now that it, it wouldn't take an awful lot to um, for this to tip over into real chaos, which is why you need hundreds of people there up at Witten and other thousands around the world in various different silos all working together, opening the kimonos and sharing this product as they can. But no, fascinating uh, visit. I, there was nothing particularly newsy because it was all off the record, you know, only only quoting defence officials. So it doesn't really work for a news story, but it's going to be a, pe- a feature piece in tomorrow just to tour around the estate of the jewel in the crown of defence intelligence, David. That'll be tomorrow. Well, thank you very much, Tom. I hadn't heard the expression opening the kimonos before, and I rather wish I hadn't. But it sounds like you had a very interesting day, and we'll look out for your feature to come. Coming up after this short break... We look at how Europe is increasing its support for Ukraine and discuss Tucker Carlson's visit to Moscow before moving on to our final thoughts. 
It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Francis Turney, I know you want to come in on this. Yeah, well, it's really interesting just hearing Dom's reflection on drones and shahids because we are hearing from our friends at the ISW today that Russian authorities are reportedly paying Iran roughly $4.5 billion per year to import those drones to use in Ukraine. So according to the ISW, a group of hackers from an organization called the Prana Network claim to have hacked into the servers of purported IRGC front company Sahara Thunder on February 4th and published the costs per drone that Russia purchases from Iran. And those leaked documents suggest that Russia pays $193,000 per Shahid drone in batches of 6,000 drones, which would total about $1.1 billion for all 6,000 drones so far. Now, Russia reportedly pays also different amounts for different kind of drones that we've seen. And there's one drone that costs 900000 per drone. And Russia purportedly plans to purchase about 2,300 of those for $2.1 So they go into a lot more detail here, but it just speaks to the extortionately high costs. And I just wanted to mention this here because I think... For reasons that are obviously understandable, we've seen a lot of fairly makeshift drones and we've reported on them being used by the Ukrainians and by the Russians in various things. And it's true that they are makeshift drones that exist that are highly effective and that can be produced for a very small amount of money. And that's part of the reason why they're so devastating, potentially, because for all the reasons Dom's talked about in the past, it can cost hundreds of millions of dollars to produce some fancy warship that can be destroyed potentially by a swarm of drones, as we've seen in the last few last week or so. So that really matters. But actually, with these Shahid drones, they're extraordinarily expensive. I mean, you've heard the amounts involved there, perhaps not as expensive as one might expect with the very highest caliber of American military, but nonetheless, extremely expensive. Russia is being fleeced here by Iran for these weapons. And I think it speaks to two things. One, the urgency of Russia's requirement for them, which is why, of course, they're willing to pay such an extortion cost. They need them and they need them desperately, hence why they're willing to pay for them. And the other, of course, is just the degree to which Iran in and Russia are so closely tied and why that relationship is so strong when you're dealing with financial amounts of this amount it is it is it any wonder that hamas and other proxies can operate with the manner and with the ability and the intelligence political cover financial cover that they can when iran are receiving these vast amounts of money from russia so i think a really really interesting story more on the isw's daily report but one i just think that perhaps slightly changes our understanding of drones. They're not all cheap. Some of them are very, very expensive indeed. Well, thank you very much, Francis. Dom and Francis, let's keep our kimonos closed then and just talk, I think we, we have to briefly talk about Tucker Carlson. Francis, do you want to lead on this? Sure. Well, he released this video last night attempting to justify his interview with Putin. In that, he made the following remark, that no Western journalist has bothered to interview the Russian president. I find this extraordinary. For a start, 
two American journalists in Russia reporting about the invasion of Ukraine, Evan Gerskovich and Alsu Kumasheva, are imprisoned in Russia for reporting on the war. Many others, such as Steve Rosenberg at the BBC, wrote last night that the BBC had lodged several requests with the Kremlin for an interview over the past 18 months, but had always been told no. Other journalists, such as ourselves, have been sanctioned by Russia and would not be able to travel there and interview the Russian president, even if we wanted to. Carlson also tries to claim it's a question of free speech when the country he's in has no free speech to speak of. Heck, Putin won't even let its citizens call this war a war without them being arrested. So I think Carlson needs to look at why he has been given the green light to speak to Putin. And it is simply because he is seen, I think, by the Kremlin as being sympathetic to Russia. And there are many reasons why they would perceive that, as well as appealing to that key contingent in the United States, the Republican core, the MAGA wing that are blocking Ukrainian support. And clearly they think that Putin can appeal to them through Tucker Carlson. I think the other thing as well that's relevant to this, and Dom and I were talking about it beforehand, is the degree to which as independent journalists, we operate in according to rules, to, to guidelines. And someone like him does not have to. So when he calls himself a journalist, I know we discussed this yesterday, David, when he calls himself a journalist, that can mean two very different things. There are journalists who work for organisations independently within organisations such as ourselves. We're pursuing our own lines of inquiry, etc. And there are journalists who basically are totally free agents that don't have to sign up to any um, IPSO standards or things like that, which affect how we report. And that means that you're searching for facts, that you're looking for balanced reporting, that you have to make sure you're not going to get sued if you make certain claims. All of this stuff is really, really important to the work that we do when we try and bring the news to our audience. So, so much for me to unpack from just the first two minutes of Carlson speaking on the question of Putin's interview. God knows how much there'll be when we actually see it drop tomorrow. Well, thank you, Francis. It's probably worth mentioning as well that he was actually fact-checked by press spokesman Dmitry Peskov, who was asked to comment on Carlson's claim that not a single Western journalist is bothered to interview Putin. Uh, Peskov said, Mr. Carlson is not correct. In fact, there's no way he could know this. We received numerous uh, numerous requests for interviews with the president, but mostly as far as countries in the collective West are concerned, these are from major network media, traditional TV channels and large newspapers that don't even attempt to appear impartial in their coverage. Of course, there's no desire to communicate with this kind of media. So he's fact-checked not only by journalists in Russia, outside of Russia, but also by the Kremlin, that surely takes some doing. Dom, Nichols, any thoughts on this before we go to our final thoughts? Not many, really. I've not got, not got many thoughts about Tucker Carlson. I don't, don't take him seriously. I don't, we discussed earlier on, is he, is he a journalist? And, and Francis and I, as Francis said, we were talking about, well, if there is, a, if there is some authoritative body that can hold you to account for your work, in our case here, the IPSO, the Independent Press Standards Organisation, or Ofcom, the Office for... Well, if you're a broadcaster, what is it, Office for Communications? Anyway, we're not broadcasters. But yeah, so we're held to account by IPSO and there are sanctions there for the organisation and for each individual journalist if we if our journalism is found to be at fault. So yeah, if there's an external body that can um, that has teeth, then I think you can be said to be a journalist. Otherwise, you're just a blogger or all the rest of it. So yeah, fine. I'm not going to die on a hill over is Tucker Carlson a journalist or not. Let's say for the sake of argument, he is. In which case, he's not a very good one.
I mean, I can't wait to hear the searching and the tough questions he puts to Putin. So those that think he's a journalist, great. You're about to see, or maybe you'll have those ideas uh, disabused. I doubt it, though. But um, but no, if he, if he is, he ain't a very good one. Well, let's move then to our final thoughts. Francis Sternley, would you like to go first? Yeah, I, just another thing from the ISW, I think is worth it commenting on. So they are talking about the increased ramping up efforts for the support of Ukraine off the back of the Ukraine facility that, of course, was greenlit last week for from the EU. And what's quite interesting about this is they've effectively tried to compile how the EU and its member states have made available 138 billion euros, including that package to give to Ukraine in order to ramp up in terms of ammunition, in terms of shells, all of this sort of stuff. And they've done a, 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 several paragraphs on this. So again, I point people to this uh, briefing and we'll add a link in the description about it. But as I said yesterday, I still think there are questions that need to be answered and I have not heard adequately answered. I'd be interested in learned listeners' perspectives on this question of even if the EU... Europe more widely, including Britain and other countries that are not in the EU, does ramp up production in the way that the ISW talks about with these enormous packages being made available to Ukraine. And let's say it does hit some of the targets around shelling and other things, shell targets. Can it fill the void of America? And I have not heard a satisfactory response to that because I've heard some people say that even if all of these quotas were hit, if you didn't have the attackers and you don't have the intelligence offering of the United States, as well as all the other things, that Europe just simply is not prepared to fill that void, given the equipment available and also simply the technological prowess at present. I don't know the answer to that. It seems a very pessimistic and negative answer to me, given that there are dozens of countries in Europe who can work together and mobilise to support one against one. But nevertheless, I'm really interested in this fundamental question because I speak, think it's urgent we get an answer to that because it will shape, surely, the nature of the European response in the months ahead. Thank you very much, Francis. Dom Nichols, let's go to you to finish today's episode. Thanks, David. We're just reflecting on my on my visit yesterday, and um, we were talking about we're talking to the officials about all the stuff that's going on in the world. As I said earlier on, and one of the one of the topics of conversation that came up was about was what's happening across the Middle East right now, and how much of that is is Iran inspired or directed or trained, funded, equipped, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And yeah, no, we, no no particular answer on that. It's, it's a debating point, but the point was made that. The, there's a lot happening at the moment that, that, at the very least, is influenced by Iran or through which, or on behalf of Morania, IRGC, Quds Force, etc., etc., have have leading elements in starting some of the efforts that are going on around around the Middle East. I'm dancing around here a little bit because I just don't, I don't want to get in trouble with it. So, but the point is that's at the moment this relative, relatively hot environment, and if the supreme leader Hamenei dies as he's thought well he's going to do at some point and he's thought to be very very ill at the moment then there will be the mother of all power plays in iran and i can't see that it will get any quieter as all these various factions then vie for the top spot so it is a concerning time at the moment especially in ukraine and the middle east but just do keep an eye on maybe it's something for um for the uh for battle lines david we should look at to do a thing on what happens when uh, supreme leader dies but there's a lot going on at the moment 
And as I said, the um, the Pathfinder building had its eco-friendly roof. Well, just to finish on, but by by continuing that environmental theme, one of the uh, one of the defence officials just to try and put everything in perspective said that there right now around the world there is a storm in the Middle East, there's a hurricane in Ukraine, but China is climate change, and I thought that was rather telling. Thanks, David. Ukraine the Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our world affairs newsletter which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And, if you have a moment, leave a review, as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Giles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells.